Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's focus on our sages right now on 101.9 High FM. afternoon. It's great to be with you, as always, on our Wednesday afternoons. We've had a little bit of a break. Um, I haven't been with you for a little while. Unfortunately, I tested positive for COVID, but I'm doing much better now, Baruch Hashem. And it's great to resume and be back um, sharing some ideas and thoughts and relevant issues with you at this time. I want to start out with today's actually Rosh Chodesh Av. is the first day of the month of Av. And we'll speak about um, the three weeks and the month of Av, the nine days, Tisha B'Av, in a few moments. I just first want to mention that yesterday was the 29th of Tammuz. The 29th of Tammuz was the Yotzeit of Rashi, Rav Shlomo Yitzchaki. Rashi was one of our greatest sages um, in the last thousand years. Rashi was a person of unbelievable accomplishment. Um, he was a great genius. He was loved by all. He was the real preeminent model of what a Torah scholar should be, what a tzaddik, what a holy person should be. And his impact on Klai Yisrael, on the Jewish people, and on the whole world was immense. Rashi was born in the year 1040 um, in France, and he uh, he, he uh, went to study in a town called Troyes. Trois, it's called in French, is pronounced in French. Um, he learned under the Or Hagola Rabbeinu Gershom, and he received, he was Makabal, the full Masora from Rabbeinu Gershon, who was the Gadol Ador, who was the great leader of the generation. Um, Rashi went on to write commentaries on the Chamish Echum Torah, on the entire Torah, on all of Tanakh, um, and on the Talmud itself. Now, the uh, achievement of that is quite incredible. It's quite Difficult to describe what an unbelievable, immense achievement that is. Rashi's commentary on the Torah is the most studied commentary on the Torah and five books of Moses. Um, and within his commentary, Rashi encapsulates the Torah Shiba Al-Peh that's relevant to that Pasuk. In other words, we have the, the written Torah and the verses of the Torah, and we have a tremendous amount of oral tradition that relates to, that applies to whatever the subject matter um, in the Torah is, Rashi gleaned and summarized the relevant points that were he felt were appropriate from the oral Torah in his commentary. And he quotes the Midrashim, he quotes the the uh, Talmud, the Gemara, um, and he really puts us in the picture. Studying Chumash, studying the five books of Moses without Rashi is uh, about getting 20% of the picture. Studying with Rashi, you get 100% of the picture. So it's quite, you know, that's why uh, when people study the Bible and they don't have the commentary, they don't have the Torah Shabbat Peh, and in particular they don't do it in Rashi, so they really are getting only a very small part of what's going on. They they uh getting just the, the basic essence and not the whole picture and all the background that surrounds it. So that's the incredible work that Rashi wrote on the five books of Moses and the Hamishay Chumshay Torah. And not only that, but Rashi wrote a commentary on all of the Talmud. We, the Talmud is, uh, 
2,711 double pages. So it's uh, um, 5,422 pages. And Rashi's commentary on the Talmud is as essential as his commentary on the Chumash, on the five books of Moses. And today in any yeshiva anywhere in the world, we learn the text of the Talmud and straight away we look at Rashi. Um, it's called Perish Akuntros, which is like the, the notes on the Talmud, and it is essential. And any high-level Gemara Shir um, always starts with Rashi's Perish, Rashi's commentary. Um, and again, Rashi puts us in the picture. If you just read the, the Talmud, the text of the Talmud, so uh, very often it's, a, it's very cryptic and difficult to understand. Rashi holds our hand. Rashi shows us, gives us the background and and um, peels away the layers and shows us the beauty and the depth and the pshat and actually what the, the Talmud is talking about. So that was the, the those were the incredible contributions Rashi made that we still are um, reliant on today that are essential to our our scholarship and to our learning today. And Rashi did all of this at the time of the Crusades, which is quite unbelievable. The Crusades were a very challenging time for the Jewish people. Um, the first Crusade, the second Crusade, as they ravaged through Europe and went to the land of Israel. And when they did so, they pillaged and raped and murdered Jews at will. And uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews were mur- murdered, uh, as much as a third of the Jewish population of Europe was wiped out in the Crusades. Um, and it's in this backdrop, it's in this environment that Rashi writes his commentaries. Um, Rashi was also a wine merchant. He was uh, he made his living and supported his family by, by trading in wine and by he had his own vineyards as well. That's why there's a label called Rashi because it's appropriate because he was a, a vintner and he was a wine merchant. Um, and so in the day he... He did business in the night. He wrote these commentaries. It's in the backdrop of the one of the most uh, severe phases of anti-Semitism the world has ever seen. Um, and still he produces the works that he did, which is quite mind-boggling. It's absolutely phenomenal that one individual could achieve so much, could do so much. Um, Rashi's grandchildren were the Balei Toysfus. And um, if you open a page of Talmud, so in the middle is the text of the Talmud, always near the margin is Rashi's commentary, and then at the end of the page, at the you know at the, at the the other side, opposite side to Rashi, is Toysus. and the Balei Toysus, Rashi's grandchildren, they are only second to Rashi in terms of their commentary, and also they open up the text and have deep penetrating analysis, and usually they look at their grandfather's commentary and ask questions on it and explain it, and uh, you know so so the basic learning of Talmud. Is Gemara Rashi Toysvus. Is learning the Gemara. Is learning Rashi. Is learning Toysvus. And so we remember Rashi was born in the year 1040, and he died in the year 1105. So this year is 1000 is is 915 years since the passing. So yesterday was 915 years since the passing of Rashi, and uh, we remember the great soul that he was, and we bask in the glow and light of his wisdom, of his genius, of his commentaries. And uh, Rashi is somebody that is essential to the Jewish people, to Klai Israel. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM.
we discussed the great Saul Rashi, whose yachtsider was yesterday. His 915th yachtsider was yesterday. Um, let's now move on, and uh, I just want to share with you some thoughts. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I haven't been around for the last few weeks because, unfortunately, I tested positive for COVID, as I'm sure many of our listeners have and many of our uh, relatives have and friends have. Uh, as we know, there is a surge here in Gauteng right now and in South Africa in general. Um, and uh, it was an interesting experience. The five of my family, five out of seven, tested positive. And uh, we thank God it wasn't too severe. Um, certainly for my kids, the younger you are, the less severe it is. So being the Abba, I'm the oldest, and uh, it did hit me the hardest. Um, first, it was... Uh, uh, it went to my sinuses, which is normal for me, and I, so I got sinusitis, and then I got very nauseous, and I couldn't keep any food down, and then my breathing was a little bit tight. Uh, thank God the chest S-rays were okay. That only lasted for three days. But it was an interesting experience, and there are some reflections that I have um, going through that experience. The first one that I want to share with you is with regards to chesed, to doing kindness to others. The Chovetz Chaim says that when we see Midas Hadin in the world, which means God's attribute of justice in the world, um, and that we sing very clearly today um, with the pandemic of COVID, which has taken over the entire world, and uh, the world's a different place, as we all know. So we live in a different world post this pandemic than we did before. And um, that is a clear expression of Midas Hadin, of God's attribute of justice. Chavot says when that happens in the world, we all need to intensify our efforts in chesed, in doing kindness. So when we show love and kindness to our fellow, that arouses God's attribute of chesed, of kindness. And that mitigates um, the din that we see around us. So we very much need God's attribute of kindness, and that is aroused by us doing kindness to one another. And therefore, we should all focus and put great effort into this area. And being um, on the other side, the recipient of kindness was something that was an interesting experience. You know, being a rabbi and my wife, Rebetzin, so we're very involved in doing chesed for the community. And when somebody's ill, we try and, you know, do what we can to help them. And we call them and we visit. Well, now we can't visit, but... Um, uh, we, we do what we can to try and, but to be on the receiving end was an important experience for me because, um, it really highlighted the power of chesed and the importance of chesed. And, uh, we were, thank God, on the receiving end for, of, of so much chesed, of a real outpouring of chesed from our families, from our friends, from our kahila, from our community. And it was uh, very heartwarming. It was very, uh, we very much appreciated the chesed that we received from so many. And it really went a long way for us. It, it helped us in our time of need and was something that we, um, that made a great impression upon us. So, and, and also one can tell, it's an amazing thing, uh, one can tell those that are genuinely concerned and those that are, you know, just going through the motions of, of fulfilling their obligation to see how you're doing, you know. Some people, you, you get the feeling that they were actually irritated that you're in the situation, you know. But many people and most people have genuine, kind concern, you know. So every phone call and every WhatsApp and every voice note really um, meant a lot to us and made a big difference to us. And, you know, some, some, many people said, what can we do? How can we help? 
We said we all fine. And anyway, they dropped off things. They dropped off treats. They dropped off soup, whatever it was. So that really was a powerful um, expression of chesed, which we greatly appreciated. And it's something that's that's very important. So the reason why I'm telling you this is that when uh, there's somebody you know who has COVID, it's very important to provide that support and do the chesed, to drop off some food, to send constant uh, uh, messages and voice notes and to show them that you're there for them and that you care. And that takes me to the second point that I wanted to make, and that's with regards to tefillah, the power of prayer. We saw at the end of last week's Pasha, last week we finished Sefer Bamidbar and we reached, we read Pasha's Masai. And in Pasha's Masai, um, we see a very interesting set of laws that the Torah teaches us with regards to what's called the Ir HaMiklat, a city of refuge. Um, that is that when a person kills somebody else accidentally by mistake. So the example that the Gemara brings is somebody's chopping his wood and he lifts his axe back and the head of the axe flies off and behind him there's a person who's walking past. He didn't know the person was there. He didn't see them. It was not uh, premeditated or deliberate. It was accidental. So if such a terrible thing happens, the person who perpetrated this accidental act would have to go to what's called an Ir HaMiklat, a city of ref- refuge. And there were a number of cities of refuge um, in Eretz Israel. There were three in Eberayad and three in Eretz Israel. And or some say there were more. Um, and a person, if they were in the city of refuge, would be protected from the girl Hadam. So the relatives of the person who was killed can actually um, seek retribution from from the perpetrator if the perpetrator is not in an Ir HaMiklat, not in a city of refuge. Once the perpetrator is in the city of refuge, he's protected. The family of uh, the deceased have no right to harm him at all. They're not allowed to harm him at all. Um, and he, th- this person r- remains in the Ir HaMiklat, in the city of refuge, until the Kohen Gadol dies, until the death of the Kohen Gadol. Why? What does the accidental uh, killing have to do with the Kohen Gadol? With the, so this person would have to be there. If the Kohen Gadol lived another 20 years, he'd have to live in that city of refuge for 20 years or 50 years, whatever it may be. And Rashi says the reason why uh, – so great, we're, we're quoting Rashi, um, whose Yotzada was yesterday. Um, so Rashi explains, and he, he quotes the Midrash that explains, that the reason why um, it's connected to the Kohen Gadol and the death of the Kohen Gadol is because the Kohen Gadol was supposed to daven for the door, was supposed to daven for that generation. And because um, maybe there was some lacking in his davening, so therefore it resulted in such terrible mishaps and disasters happening in the community. Such disasters only happen um, when um, there's a, a spiritual vulnerability that exists, and the Kohen Gadol's davening protects us from that spiritual vulnerability. And so his davening, there was some deficiency in his davening that he didn't, uh, wasn't successful in creating that protection. And that's why such a terrible thing happens. So firstly, we see the great power of tefillah. And certainly, um, holy people have to take it, everybody has to take it very seriously. That our tefillah provides a protection. And it protects us from terrible mishaps and terrible accidents. And it protects us from all sorts of dangers. So particularly at this time where we're facing this global pandemic and the surge here in uh, Gauteng, we all need to take our tefillah seriously 
and we need all the protection that we could find that we could uh, use at this time. Um, and so we see another interesting point with regards to this um, issue of the era Miklat, that the uh, Mishnah in Marcos tells us that the mother of the Kohen Gadol would go to the Aram Miklat, would go to these cities of refuge, and would give treats to those people that were there um, because they had uh, killed somebody accidentally. She would uh, give them sandwiches, she would give them cake and cookies. Why would she do so? Because the Gemara says that she's worried that these individuals are going to daven that her son will die. They'll daven that he should die soon, and therefore they could return back to their homes. And so she wants to counter that and give them treats and make them like her and like her son and not daven that he will die, which is also an incredible thing. But we see the amazing power of tefillah of every single individual. The tefillah of any regular person, any regular yid, has a great impact on the reality, on the situation, on the life of the Kohen Gadol. The Kohen Gadol is the spiritual head of the Jewish people. And because somebody's davening that he should die, that's going to have an impact. That's going to be a very serious thing. And therefore his mother wants to counter that and wants to prevent that. So we see the great power of tefillah of every single individual that we shouldn't take for granted. And a number of people asked me for my Hebrew name, and it gave me great comfort to know that these individuals were davening for me, and each day they were davening for me, and that is a very important thing and a very powerful thing. So we should all, the two lessons that I am sharing from my COVID experience is chesed, is the power of chesed, the importance of chesed, the significance that chesed arouses Hashem's Middle of Chesed, and secondly, Tefillah, that we all need to daven for ourselves, we need to daven for our families, and we need to daven for those that are ill. So if you know people that have COVID, people that you're connected to, send them a WhatsApp, wish them well, ask them for their Hebrew name, and tell them that you're going to daven for them every day. That's very powerful, very significant, and very important. Okay, great. So let's now um, move on. And discuss a little bit about our, the times that we're in right now. Um, so as I mentioned, today is Rosh Chodesh Av. Today is the first day of the month of Av. And the Gemara says, the Gemara in Tani says that Mishenichnas Av Ma'atim Basimcha. When the month of Av comes, we rejoice, uh, we reduce our joy. We l- limit our levels of joy. A very interesting diuk from that Mishnah is it doesn't say we don't have any joy. As a Jew, our lives are filled with joy. In fact, the greatest joy comes from being a person who is connected with Hashem, who's living a life of meaning and of purpose and knows what they're doing here and knows what their mission is in this world. There's no greater source of joy than that. So the life of an observant Jew is a very happy, fulfilled, um, content existence because you feel that sense of serenity and of um, and of mission and of purpose and of um, meaning in one's life. So the mission doesn't say there's no joy. There's always joy for a Jew. It's just that in the month of Av we reduce our joy. In the month of um, Adar we marbim besimcha. We increase our joy. So there are different times in the year where the, the high and low levels of joy. But there's always joy in the life of a Jew. There's no question. So we mamatim besimcha. And uh, the, we've already we are already in this period called the three weeks, Bainamitzarim, and the three weeks are a time of mourning for the Jewish people. 
And they started with Shiva Asa Tammuz, with the fast of the 17th of Tammuz, which was um, on the 9th of July, which we've been through already. Um, and now, so we, we already started the three weeks. With, with the fast of the 17th of Tammuz, um, so we uh, don't have any weddings during the three weeks. You'll notice there are no weddings. Even uh, It's not because of COVID we're not having weddings in the three weeks. We allowed weddings, but we don't have them at this time from uh, Shiva Asa Tammuz until Tisha B'Av. So Shiva Asatamas was on the 9th of July. Tishabab is next Thursday, is the 30th of July. Um, we also um, uh, don't uh, listen to any music at this time during the three weeks. We also don't have haircuts and shave during the three weeks. If a person has an issue with their panosa and they may end up losing out as a result, so they are haterian, contact your local Orthodox rabbi. We also don't buy items. Items for which we say Shekhiyanu. So we don't buy a suit or we don't buy an important item for myself for which you would usually say Shekhiyanu, a new dress, a new suit, etc. Um, during the three weeks. So that was, that already started, um, on the ni- on the, uh, 9th of July and the 17th of Tammuz. But now today is, um, is Rosh Chodesh Av and it's the beginning of the nine days. So the morning now intensifies at this time. It becomes more severe. So, what are the added restrictions that apply now for the night? And it's quite interesting. This cycle of mourning follows the usual cycle of a mourner. Somebody who's in Avelis, but it's the other way around. So somebody who's in mourning, they have, first they have the Shiva, then they have the Shloshim, then they have Yubay Shodesh. They have Shiva, and then they have the first 30 days of mourning, which is 23 days after Shiva ends, and then they have the 12 months of mourning when a parent is deceased. So, um, the the three weeks follows that same pattern, but in reverse order. So the beginning of the three weeks, which is the um, which is from the 17th of Tammuz until the Rosh Chodesh which is today. So then we started some aspects of mourning which resemble the Yud Beis Chodesh, the 12 months of mourning. And now from Rosh Chodesh Av until until Tisha B'Av, we take on a higher level of intensity of mourning, which is like the Shloshim. That we, we observe the things like Shloshim. And then, um, on Tisha B'Av itself, it's like we are sitting Shiva. It's like we are a mourner who's sitting Shiva. Those are the laws of Tisha B'Av. So what are those things we take on now in the nine days? So they are, we don't make improvements to our home or to our garden. We, we don't do renovations or luxurious improvements. Those things that are, are essential and necessities we can do, but luxuries we don't do. We don't do laundry. I mean, here in South Africa, it's interesting that we, are very spoilt and privileged that many of us have domestic um, help at home. So um, it, it, there's a big question, how do you have to stop your domestic? You can't tell them to do laundry, but you don't actually have to stop them from, from doing what they usually do. Um, we also don't wear new or laundered clothing in the nine days. So what we are supposed to do is take out the freshness of the clothing. So either what many people do is they wear their the, the clothing um, before the nine days for a half an hour each item, and then obviously not underwear, but but you you know your shirts and those kind of things. Um, or if you haven't done that, what you can do is put your clothing on the floor and trample on it with your shoes on. Um, so that takes away the freshness of their clothing, and that would then be allowed. You would be allowed to wear it during the nine days. We also don't make or buy new clothes at this time. Um, so it's obviously. It's significant clothing, but if there's essentials that you need, you can buy them. But we don't buy a new dress. We don't buy a new jacket, a new you know, pair of shoes. We refrain from that during the nine days. 
Um, we also don't eat meat and drink wine during the Nandis. And that's, that's quite an interesting and difficult halacha to follow, especially here in South Africa where the meat is affordable and is of such a high quality. The kosher, the kosher meat is outstanding here in South Africa. So um, we don't eat meat at this time, apart from Shabbos. On Shabbos, we can have meat, Friday night, Shabbos day. But on the, the rest of the time, so we're going to be having um, lots of fish at this time. We don't have meat or chicken. Poultry is in the category of meat. Um, so no meat at this time. Um, and also we don't drink wine. We, we shouldn't have – other alcoholic beverages are allowed, but wine is not allowed apart from on Shabbos. And finally, another halacha also that makes it uh, quite uh, different and difficult at this time we don't bathe for pleasure. So we can't have long, hot, luxurious baths, which we enjoy having now in winter. Um, so one can wash off dirt. So if one is dirty, one can wash off dirt. And one should do it in water that is not as hot as usual, cooler water. It doesn't have to be cold, but it shouldn't be luxuriously hot. And also one should do it limb by limb. One should do it in the shower with, on individual limbs. Um, however, when it comes to Shabbos, on Erev Shabbos, on Friday, one can have do the regular preparation for Shabbos and wear regular Shabbos clothing. And that is uh, also allowed. So one sees that there are a number of added restrictions that we now observe, observe during the nine days. And that leads up to Tisha B'Av, which is next Wednesday night, Thursday. And um, obviously that's uh, it's uh, the, the um, we are proper mourner. We like we in Shiva, we're fasting on Tisha B'Av and we're sitting on the floor and we don't greet people, we, we don't learn Torah, the normal Torah, um, that is all um, the, the, the peak of the intensity of mourning of the three weeks, climaxes with Tisha B'Av, which is next Wednesday night and Thursday. Now the point of, of this morning is we are remembering the destruction of the, both Bata Mikdash was were destroyed, first and second temple were destroyed on the ninth of Av, and we, uh, Judaism is never around historical commemorations and remembrances. It's much more than that. That we, our sages tell us that we are supposed to focus on the reasons, the underlying causes for the destruction of the temples. When things happen to Klai Israel, they're not random events, but they're a result of us losing our spiritual protection from Hashem. That breach in our protection comes through our base, through our transgressions. And we know that the reason why the first temple was destroyed was for the three cardinal sins. And we know the second temple was destroyed because of because of senseless hatred. So at this time, all of these customs of mourning are supposed to remind us and arouse us to remember that this is a time of vulnerability for the Jewish people, a time of sadness and destruction for the Jewish people, and a time that we are supposed to metaken, to repair those things that brought about the destruction, which is... Um, those three cardinal sins and sinas chinam sensuous hatred. So we work now, especially at this time, or, uh, we, as I mentioned earlier, we should be chesed. So that that counters the sinas chinam, the hatred um, and fraction that exists in the Jewish people. So all of these customs remind us of the spiritual work to be done, which, please God, the Jewish people will do, and therefore see an end to the galus, an end to the destruction, an end to the um, exile that the Jewish people face. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM.
are now beginning the fifth and final Sefer of the Torah, which is called Sefer Devarim. That's what we read this Shabbos. We start Devarim. We finished by Midbar. Last week is Matos Masa. And now we begin Devarim. Devarim is always the, the uh, parasha we read before Tisha B'Av. And Sefer Devarim is the fifth of the five books of Moses. And it is uh, slightly different to the other Sforim in the Torah. In that... The way the Vilna Gaon describes it, the way the Maharal describes it, is that the other four books of the Torah um, were directly dictated to Moses from Hashem. In other words, Hashem told him what to write, and Moses wrote down word for word every single um, word that Hashem told him. When it comes to Sefer Devarim, there was a slight delay. In other words, Hashem told Moshe, and then Moshe put it down in his own words. So the rest of the Torah is first-hand from Hashem, and Devarim comes through Moshe. It, it, it was told to Moshe, and then he put it down in his own words. Um, Rav Hirsch says that Sefer Devarim is actually a very important preparation for the Jewish people going into um, the land. Up until now, the Jewish people are um, are um, are not yet in the land. They haven't arrived at their destination. But with the Varim and the death of Moshe, they're on the brink. They're about to enter into the land. So Rav Hirsch says that the Varim is preparing the people for life in the land. There are 200 years, uh, 200 mitzvahs that are, are, um, are in this, in Sefer Devarim that we see that Moshe tells them about 200 commandments. About 70 of those 200 are new. They haven't been told before. So Rav Hirsch says that he's, He's giving them all the, the mitzvahs and the um, hashkofa, which means the outlook and the understanding and preparing Klai for the new phase in their development. And that is being a nation, not living off the man, of the manna and being looked after by Hashem, but now having to run their own country, having to harvest, to plant, plow, plant, harvest, having to run their uh, uh, organizations in the community, having to set up Bate Dinim, having to run, a, a live as a, a nation in a country. So there, there was much preparation needed, and that is Sefer Devarim, according to Rav Hirsch. That is what Moshe Rabbein is preparing them with. The question is, however, why is it that Moshe Rabbeinu starts out in the way he does in Sefer Devarim? Um, Sefer Devarim has within it, as we said, the 200 commandments, but some of those commandments are at the heart of Yiddishkeit. For example, Pasha's Ve'eschanan, which they call the heart of Devarim, we see the Aseret Dibros, and we see the commandments to love Hashem, the commands Ve'dafkabo, to cling to Hashem, Ve'alachta Bedrachav, to follow in Hashem's ways, and we see the credo, the anthem, the basis of all of Klai Yisrael, that which unites the Jewish people, is our anthem of Shema Yisrael, Hashem Loken Hashem Echad. That, that verse is in Pasha's Ve'eschanan, which is later on in Devarim, that listen Israel, Hashem our God, Hashem is one, which is the defining sentence of the Jewish people, of Klal Yisrael. So why does Moshe Rabbeinu only wait till later in Devarim to teach us all of these important fundamental ideas? Why doesn't he start out with that? How does Moshe Rabbeinu start? How does Devarim begin? So the beginning of Devarim is... Um, is about Moshe Rabbeinu rebuking the people. He goes through the history of, of Klai Yisrael and through the many different incidences that took place in the desert, and he rebukes them, and he said, you did this wrong, and you did that wrong, and remember, you did this wrong, 
that's how he introduces us. That has, and only then does he get on to those fundamental lofty principles of loving Hashem, of serving Hashem, of clinging to Hashem, of Hashem is one. So why is that the order? It's a great kasha that's asked by the great Hasidic Rebbe, the Nesiv Shalom, the Stonim Rebbe. And the Nesiv Shalom says that the reason, the, he brings two beautiful answers to this question. The first answer he says is because Reishis Chochma Yeras Hashem, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of Hashem. That we, the pathway to spiritual growth, he quotes the Zohar, he quotes the Gemara, that say that, um, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, um, tells, teaches us that the pathway to grow is firstly to have Yiras Hashem, which means to have an awe and reverence for Hashem, and then we can get to the great level of Avas Hashem, of loving Hashem. Um, he says, because the nature of a person, Ki Adam, Rami Urav, the nature of a human being, is that we've got a Yetzirah. We have what we call our evil inclination, our negative inclination. Our inclination that takes us, that pulls us down and wants us to indulge ourselves and indulge our appetites for power and pleasure. That's our natural instinct. That's who we are. That's how human beings were made. And in order to break out of that self-censored, egotistic view of life in the world, which we all are born with, we have to have a Yerushalayim. We have to have reverence for God and for the creator of the universe. That reverence shifts us out of our selfish, self-centered mindset and paves the way, uh, provides the platform for us then to build a relationship with Hashem. But first we have to have the reverence for Hashem. And only then, Hashem, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of Hashem, the famous Pasuk from Mishle. So first we have to have reverence and fear of Hashem. And then can we begin, that breaks us out of our selfish, self-centered default position, and then we can build the relationship with Hashem. Then we can build a love and a, a, uh, a loyalty and a, a understanding Hashem Echad Hashem is one. So that's the process of spiritual growth. First we have to have Yeras Hashem and then, so that's what Moshe Rabban is doing. He's installing Yeras Hashem into them and then he can, then he opens them up and they can then grow and develop in a uh, in a pathway of avas Hashem of loving Hashem. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on one hundred one point nine High FM. One more beautiful pshat, beautiful explanation of the civil shalom. So remember, we just asked the question, why does Moshe start the Varim, start the fifth book of the Torah with rebuking the Jewish people and taking them through the errors, the transgressions that they committed in the desert? And our first answer was that first a person has to have Yiras Hashem, reverence for Hashem, and then they open to building a relationship of love with Hashem. So therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu is creating this atmosphere of Yiras Hashem, of reverence for Hashem, and then he can teach them about the lofty uh, goals of the Jewish people to love Hashem, to serve Hashem, to walk in Hashem's ways, to live with the cognizance of Hashem Echad, Hashem is one. Shema Yisrael Hashem, Hashem Echad. He also brings a second answer that he says is a, a deeper answer. Um, he said, uh, there's a, a greater uh, understanding in this answer. And he says the following, beautiful idea. He says on Siva Shalom, is that a person has to 
submit themselves and humble themselves to Hashem before they can build any relationship with Hashem. He quotes the Gomorrah and Soita. The Gomorrah says, Shamid Ga'e HaKadosh Baruch Hu Oymer, Ein Alav, Ein Ani Vahu Yacholim Nador. About an arrogant person, Hashem says, I cannot dwell together with this person. We can't be in the same place. And the Nasir Hashem points out that for, it doesn't say this about any other Avera that's committed in the Torah. It only says it about an arrogant person. Because when a person's arrogant, and a person's full of themselves and full of their achievements and full of their family. And, you know, sometimes you meet people and there's just no space for anybody else or anything else. It's just them and what they've done and what they're doing and their business and their family and their achievements. And, you know, it's them, them, them. There's no space for anybody else. Let alone HaKadosh Baruch Hu Hashem. So when a person's arrogant and when a person's self-centered and when a person is um, fixated on their own world and their life, there's no space for Hashem, no space for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The pathway to building a relationship with anybody, and of course with the uh, creator of the universe, with Hashem, is to humble oneself, to withhold oneself, to um, restrict oneself. In other words, control oneself, and then you create space for another. And that's what Moshe Rabbein is doing. He's showing the people, he's humbling them, he's He's, uh, he, he, uh, the Nesiv Hashem says, person has to have shivron leg, which be, means broken hearted. They have to have some broken heartedness to them in order and through the cracks of that broken heart, Hashem can enter. And then there's space for Hashem. But when we are riding on the crest of a wave and we are untouchable and we are invincible and there's no space for Hashem in such a world and such a mindset. And one sees that very clearly. One sees that in, um, the world around us that there are many people that I've had contact with and they've experienced success and then they've, they've experienced loss or failure or tragedy and very often that loss and tragedy makes them a different person. They grow tremendously. They become humble. They see Hashem. They acknowledge that mo- much of what takes place, in, in, in fact, 99% of what takes place is out of our hands, is in control of a higher being, a higher power, in control of Hashem. And they begin to grow tremendously from those experiences. So we should uh, we should be encouraged by this beautiful teaching of the Nesiva Shalom that we need to humble ourselves. And sometimes life humbles us. Hashem humbles us with our experiences that we go through. But that's the beginning of our growth as a human being. And then we open to a whole new world, to a whole new existence. And we open to Hashem's presence and to building a relationship with Hashem. So Moshe Rabbein is telling them about their failures and about their their mistakes, and that's humbling Klai Yisrael, and then they are ready, then they are open to build a relationship of love and of commitment and of dedication and of uh, acknowledgement, cognizance of Hashem's oneness, that Hashem is one. Thank you so much for listening. It's great to be with you once more, and have a wonderful day.